Good evening. Welcome to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. This event is sponsored by the law firm Bennett and McClamor. This is a show of words and music. Writer Dan Wakefield and saxophonist Sophie Fott believe music and songs are made for each other. And stories. <laughs> That's what we'll give you with guest vocalist Julie Houston, guitarist Joel Tucker, and guest author Kathy Day, who's written a novel on Linda and Cole Porter. And now, as Cole Porter himself wrote, let's do it. When the little bluebird who has never said a word starts to sing spring, spring. When the little bluebell in the bottom of the dell starts to sing ding, ding. When the little blue clerk in the middle of his work starts a tune to the moon up above It is nature that's all Simply telling us to fall in love And that's why birds do it Bees do it Even educated fleas do it Let's do it Let's fall in love In Spain the best upper sense
Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm really pleased about tonight and very happy we have Kathy Day, one of Indiana's finest authors, who's written a very good novel called uh, uh, The Circus in Winter. She is from Peru, Peru, which also happens to be the home place of Cole Porter. And so I want her to tell us, because she was so inspired by him, she has written a really wonderful book about Cole Porter's wife leading up to him, and it's called Linda Before Cole. So I know that she has a second volume, Natural, which will be called Cole After Linda. <laughs> <laughs> So Kathy, uh, tell us how you got interested and knew that Cole was from your hometown. I am ashamed to admit that I grew up in Peru, Indiana and did not know he, who he was until 1990 when I went to New York. Uh, I went, went into a Tower Records and I purchased, um, do any of you remember Red, Hot, and Blue, the tribute to Cole Porter with, for AIDS research with all those great bands, those are all my favorite bands. And I was like, yeah, who's this Cole Porter? And I open up the liner notes, and it said um, Cole Porter was born in Peru, Indiana. And my husband, uh, Eric, who was with me at the time that I found this album and saw this, I, I flipped out. Like, how could I grow up in Peru and not know that? And so when I got back to Peru, I went to my grandma's house, because she was part of like the historical society. And I said, Grandma, why don't we celebrate Cole Porter uh, more in town? And she said, well, because he left. <laughs> and I said, well, of course he had to leave, Grandma. I mean, he's Cole Porter. You can't write musicals and live in Peru. You have to go to New York. And she goes, well, he wasn't really like the rest of us. <laughs> but I, I have to say that um, growing up, there weren't any, you, when you came into Peru, there was no sign that said birthplace of Cole Porter. But in 1991, right after I had that conversation with her, it was the 100th anniversary of his birth. Uh, he was born June 9th, so his birthday was just a few days ago. And um, all these people from all over the world wanted to make a pilgrimage to Peru to celebrate Cole, and the town fathers were like, we should put something together. <laughs> and ever since, we've had um, the Cole Porter Festival, and so they definitely celebrate Cole in Peru now. They just didn't when I was growing up. So, Sophie, when did you first hear about Cole? Well, I think, uh, you know, any jazz musician or any jazz lover hears his songs mm -hmm. um, everywhere. And uh, I have been hearing his music for years and years, and in fact, preparing for this show, there were several songs where I, I found out, oh, that was written by Cole Porter, too. I was like, really? That one, too? Yeah. But, you know... It, it, we were kind of taught, okay, there were there were several great songwriters who didn't write for jazz musicians at all, but their music was was adopted by the jazz world and beloved by jazz musicians for generations. And Cole Porter, certainly one of them, George Gershwin, Jerome Kern, Harold Arlen, he is kind of, and Irving Berlin were the five, the big five. We were taught the big five. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's interesting, some of these, some of those songwriters, like George Gershwin, for example, very aware of the adaptability of their music to jazz and um, wanted that to happen. You know, Gershwin was kind of famous for trying to pioneer, you know, uh, bringing jazz to uh, 
at that time, it wasn't really considered high-class music, so trying to combine it with classical um, influences to create a music that he could present to high society, um, that was something he wanted to do. Cole Porter did not really want his music to be played by jazz musicians, and in fact, uh, at one point in his life, he was asked to write a jazz song, and he said he had to do research. He got a jazz musician to come and advise him, and I found that hilarious because <laughs> we jazz musicians love to play his songs. They don't need any help. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think it's interesting that he is, his songbook is so beloved by all jazz musicians, and yet that was not really what the music was intended to be no. used for at all. Musical theater is what he wrote his music for. I, I was amazed when I started uh, reading some of this. I just want to read, this is only a partial list of the songs that Cole Porter wrote. Night and Day, Let's Do It, Delovely, Anything Goes, Begin the Begin, You're the Top, All Through the Night, Love for Sale, I Get a Kick Out of You, My Heart Belongs to Daddy, Just One of Those Things, Easy to Love, Every Time We Say Goodbye, I Love Paris, Say Menifee, I've Got You Under My Skin, In the Still of the Night, Don't Fence Me In, Miss Otis Regrets, from now on, it's all right with me. That's just a sample. I was really impressed by the fact that he went from Peru, Indiana to Yale. He became a big man on campus because he wrote the two most famous Yale football songs. Which so, apparently they still sing today, yes, right? They do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Well, and isn't it true that, so they, so Cole and Linda lived in Paris in the 20s during that famous time period when Ernest Hemingway yeah. and John de los Pas, all those people were living there, and he didn't really want to associate with any of those guys, right? No. no. He had his own set that he was running with. Their he was set, too cool for them. Their <laughs> set was the, um, like, the socialite crowd. That was really more their crowd, the cafe society. Um, one thing I wanted to say was that Cole wrote a song almost every day of his life, and when he would be working for a show, they would say, well, we need a song here, Mr. Porter, for this. And then he would write one, and they would say, no, this doesn't really work. Could you work on it a little bit? And he would take the song and throw it over his shoulder and say, I'll write you a new one. Um, and so he threw out a lot of the songs, too. So it's hard to know exactly how many of those were, um, how many could there have been that right. just ended up you know, getting thrown over his shoulder. I, I think you should fill this in on the role of Linda, his wife, and the, the uh, unusualness of that right. marriage. I think that once, you know, night and day, the movie did not reveal that Cole was homosexual, but the second movie, DeLovely, did, and the first biography of Cole didn't mention his homosexuality either. And I think that that's the question that I think made me want to write a book is, so why did Linda marry Cole? They met at a wedding in 1918, and the thing that I need you to try to remember is that in 1918, Linda was famous. Linda was a celebrity. She had been married to what I call the Charlie Sheen of the Gilded Age, and she was in all the papers all the time. She was, um, uh, I don't know, she would be like the equivalent of kind of a, the socialites today are like the Paris Hiltons and the Kim Kardashians. She was like that. And Cole Porter was just a, a, a young guy sitting there playing piano who she thought was really talented. And he had come to Paris because his very first musical, um, uh, See America First, from 1918,
from 1915 or 16, I think, flopped. It only played 15 shows in New York. And he was so embarrassed that he had to leave the country. And he went to Paris to kind of lick his wounds. And um, I think that uh, the reason that Linda and, and Cole got married is that they gave, they, um, they complimented each other. What Cole needed, he had <coughs> talent, but he didn't know anybody. And the thing that Linda was really good at was knowing people. She was good at networking. Well, and I think it would be a great time to play another one of his very early hits. Um, this is a song from the first musical he wrote that actually was a hit. Yeah. Uh, this is the title song, and it's called Anything Goes. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Now heaven knows anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use four-letter words. Write in prose, anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today, and black's white today, and day's night today, and most guys today, but women prize today are just silly gigolos. So though I'm not a great romancer, I know that I'm bound to answer if you propose anything. The 
set that's smart is intruding in nudist parties in studios. guys a question about the timing part of this about like that certain people become celebrities or stars or their their art hits at a particular moment and you can't plan for that um, I mean I felt I mean he even admitted it himself that his songs were just right for a particular moment in time Cole I think you know he broke a lot of the rules as a songwriter that's one of the things that's interesting about him from a musical perspective is that in in his day when he was writing there was strict rules about how long a song would be and how the song would work and Cole threw those out the window when you listen to some of these tunes you can hear oh gee the, those lyrics go on for a while that one's kind of long he was known for that he wrote song forms that were atypical, they were longer, and what was great about them was it left space for the performers to interpret and to interject, and there was room to be creative with Cole's songs, and I think that's one of the reasons why jazz musicians have always loved his music so much is because he leaves space for the performer. Um, Night and Day is a great example. We're going to play that one a little bit later. When that song first came out, um, the reviewers called it a tapeworm of a song. <laughs> it was like twice as long as, uh, as a normal song. However, Irving Berlin wrote him a letter about it and said this is the best popular song that's been written yet. Well, and, and like so many of his songs, when he first wrote it, it was not a hit. No mm -hmm. one even noticed it. It took about eight years for that one to become popular. Don't Fence Me In, I think, took almost that long. Mm -hmm. Many of his songs were ignored at the time, mm -hmm. and it was only later that people realized, that's, a, that's so, a really something special song. about that song. It took the interpretation. I mean, Begin the Begin is probably the most famous example. Um, as interpreted by Artie Shaw, that's what we think Begin the Begin is, is the Artie Shaw version, but it's not. If you listen to it the way it sounds, when we begin to be, it's no words, just the song is what's really good. Yeah. Well, and another thing that made Cole different from most of the um, songwriters of his day was that he wrote both the lyrics and the melodies. Cole was almost unique in that he did both. And um, also, his songwriting process, and hopefully I'm not getting too geeky up for the... No, non I want to hear this. He didn't write the words first, and he didn't write the melody first either. He wrote the rhythms first, and he would tap out the rhythm and get all of the rhythmic content sorted out, and then he would come up with the right words that fit into the, you know, the, the scheme yeah. of the rhythm, and only after he had both the words and the rhythms did he write the melodies. And what is so magical about that is when you listen to the music, most of the time when you hear Cole's music now, you, there, there isn't a vocalist. You're not hearing the words. Mm -hmm. And those melodies stand alone. But that was the last thing that he wrote. Mm -hmm. And he had to make that fit around all the other content that he had created. So that truly takes a genius mind to be able mm -hmm. to do that time and time again. And I think that's one of the things that makes Cole Porter really special. 
Well, I think we're going to continue with the Cole Porter songbook. We're going to play another um, really famous tune of his. This is also from that first hit musical, Anything Goes. There's a lot of good songs buried in there if you've ever seen it or, you know, check it out. Anyway, this one is called Easy to Love.
Let's hear it again for Julie Houston on vocals. Joel Tucker on the guitar. Kathy Day, our guest author for today. Dan Wakefield, of course, you know him. And I'm Sophie Fott. We thank you so much for being here. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back soon with lots more Cole Porter songs and stories, so don't go anywhere. Okay, folks, I think we're ready to go again. We're going to uh, have a few things to say before you hear the great music. And uh, one of the things that I think was very, summed up a lot of things that, that was very useful was uh, Roger Ebert's review. You probably remember, I, I mean, I think Roger Ebert was one of the, one of the great movie reviewers we've ever had. He said this, Porter floated effortlessly for a time between worlds, gay and straight, Europe and America, Broadway and Hollywood, showbiz and high society. He had a lifelong love affair with his wife and lifelong love affairs without his wife. <laughs> he thrived, it seemed, on a lifestyle that would have destroyed other men and was, in fact, illegal in most of the places where he lived it. And all the time, he wrote those magical songs. Then a horse fell down and smashed his legs, and he spent 27 years in pain, and still he wrote those magical songs. <clears throat> By the way, in Ebert's review, there was another very good insight, I think. I think you would agree with this. Uh, Ebert said, Cole Porter's lyrics take on a tantalizing ambiguity. Once you understand, they are not necessarily written about love for a woman. And then he quotes from, it's the wrong time, it's the wrong, no, it's the wrong game, it's the wrong chips, though your lips are lovely, they're the wrong lips. They're not her lips, but they're such tempting lips that if some night you're free, then it's all right, it's all right with me. And all of the songs really can be looked at or understood in, the, in those so terms. Too, yeah. yeah. Well, so talking about the marriage that Cole and Linda had, obviously, uh, for most of their lives, it worked pretty well as a partnership and, um, you know, as companionship. But there was a period of time where the marriage was in jeopardy and yes. they were considering ending that partnership. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. In 1936, um, Linda was contemplating divorcing Cole. Um, this, the issue with him being in Hollywood half the year was really starting to wear on her. And um, it was also around that time that he was so famous that he didn't need Linda to be his publicist anymore. He had a publicist. And so her role in his life was diminished as well. Um, but what happened right around that time was, um, right around the time they were thinking about divorcing is when he had that horse accident 
broke both of his legs. The doctor suggested that he amputate definitely one of them, if not both of them, um, because the bones were so crushed that they didn't think they could stitch them or put them back together again. Yeah, broke the legs is almost not correct. It's like pulverized. He pulverized. Both his legs were pulverized by the full weight of a horse. The horse fell on one side, crushed one leg, got up, fell down again, crushed the other right. leg. And then the story is that Cole was in shock and didn't even realize that he was injured. And he was laying there telling his friends, I'm fine. And they said, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> and supposedly, he, he was working on a show at that time called You Never Know, which is kind of ironic, too, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he pulled out his notebook from his back pocket and wrote down the rest of the lyrics to the song he was writing on while they I don't know about that story. This is a story he liked to tell. <laughs> but yeah, they, his friends always said you can never tell if he was pulling your legs. Well, I, I, I think the, the greatest uh, story about, true story about Linda is that at that moment, she, when she was informed that they were going to amputate his legs, she said, no way. And she was in Paris, and she came back to New York and stopped them from amputating his legs and said, no matter how many operations you have to do, don't do that. And I think that was a great decision. I, I, because when he finally did have one to have leg. one a- leg amputated, he never wrote another song. Right. And I think that having those legs amputated, that would have been the end. What's funny and, is that she was getting ready to divorce her first husband when he was in a car accident and had his leg crushed. And then she rushed back and uh, took care of him and, uh, until they finally ended up divorcing. So like the same, they actually were in the same hospital called the Doctor's Hospital in New York. And I think that that's just really interesting too, that the same thing happened. Imagine the trauma for her as she's going through this scenario the second time and seeing this man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. Couldn't, wow. That's why she, I think she stayed with him after that, is that it changed the dynamic back to where he needed her again. Yeah. Um, and if he hadn't been in, if he hadn't had that horrible accident, they probably would have gotten divorced. So. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, go back to the songbook. We're going to play a song. Speaking of horses, <laughs> we're going to play a song called I Get a Kick Out of You. <laughs> Though it 
it's clear to see you obviously don't adore me I get no kick in the plane flying too high with some guy in the sky he's my idea nothing to do but I get a kick out of you too high with some guy in the sky is my idea of nothing to do but I get a kick I get a kick yeah I get a kick out of you think I can be as good a storyteller as you are a saxophonist. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Well, thanks. <laughs> well, and uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Kathy, is uh, when that first, when that biopic came out where uh, called Night and Day and Cary Grant is playing Cole Porter, did, did the public just not know, I, I guess that was the era when movie stars had to pretend, even though they were gay and the other people knew it and the columnists knew it, it was like Rock Hudson. I have a friend who did a biography of him and, and talked to him in his last days alive, but uh, they were, stars were, they were just not allowed that. So I guess the, the public was supposed to not know this or not recognize it? Oh no, I mean, at that time, they couldn't even uh, hint 
at something like that in the movies. Or if they did, they'd have to. There's a really great documentary, if you ever want to watch it, called The Celluloid Closet. And it's about the Hayes Act. Yeah, the Hayes Act was um, a way that the government sort of policed the mores uh, that were depicted in films. And Celluloid Closet's about how homosexuality, if you're looking really closely at some films, you can sort of recognize those things. But no, I think that the, um, I mean, they could have cast Fred Astaire as Cole Porter. I mean, he kind of looks like him. He, sh he looks more like him than certainly Cary Grant. But I think what they wanted to do, and, and Cole and Linda were right on board with this, they wanted it to be as dreamlike and not as real as possible. They wanted it to be a fantasy about their marriage and about who they were. So why not? Who wouldn't want to have Cary Grant play them? Well, Cole, Cole Porter suggested Cary Grant. He to did, play yes. Him. And actually, Cary Grant was signed to a different studio. So he kind of knew he was making a difficult suggestion, and everyone said, oh, okay, let's get Cary Grant. <laughs> In fact, uh, when, when Cole Porter was asked what he thought of the movie, he said, it was like a dream. And they, they just took that to be, oh, he really liked it. Well, another thing they struggled with in making the film was finding a screenwriter who could do it. Um, they went through almost 10, I think, before they found someone because the screenwriters complained there's no there's, conflict. There's no conflict. His life was too easy. <laughs> well, I, all the stuff that was good conflict, they couldn't talk about. So right. there was the problem. That's a, you know, that's a great point. I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. There was tons of conflict in his life, but it wasn't. To be really honest, about. I mean, what brings, what makes me so fascinated by Colin Linda's marriage is that it's a great story. And it's not, I didn't come at this from being a lover of his songs. Like, you know, I'm not a jazz uh, person. I really didn't know anything about that. I just think even without the music, their story is really interesting. Yeah, every aspect, it has some angle that you don't expect. And I, I was fascinated by the fact that uh, he wrote Night and Day with, with Fred Astaire in mind. Fred Astaire at first didn't want to do it. He didn't like it. And he, had, and he thought it would be difficult to do the whole thing, and he had to be persuaded right. into it. Yeah. Which is sort of amazing. And then it was a, a great Yeah, and a lot of a lot of Cole's tunes, as we said, weren't hits in the day and some of them didn't get discovered until years later. And it's you know, talking about the contrast in his life. His lyrics were political. They mentioned current events of the day. In fact, when Anything Goes went to the UK, he had to change some of the lyrics in the song because the jokes wouldn't resonate with mm -hmm. the British people. And there was another uh, situation, I think it was with the same musical, where he had included a lyric about Mrs. Lindbergh. And right before the musical came out, they uh, caught the kidnapper of the children, and so he, or the child, so he felt like it would not be um, you know, sensitive to include mm -hmm. that lyric. So he changed it. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have this music that was written for the actual day that it was going to be released. But then on the other hand, here we are playing these songs decades later, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon. So, you know, what kind of an artist can create something that is both absolutely current and timeless? That's special. That is very special. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I really impressed me about reading his life and his career is that he was very often counted out. He, he would, there'd be a period where maybe he had a Broadway show that didn't do well. Everyone would say, oh, Cole Porter's over, he's done, he had his day, and then he comes up with the next thing. 
I mean, just over and over that happened. One of the things that Linda did is she saved every single review of every single one of his musicals in any paper in America. And um, she saved all of these in scrapbooks. And I went to Yale, where they all are kept. Actually, they've all been shot on er, microfilm. So I spent like our honeymoon, actually, <laughs> looking at these these things and getting making myself dizzy as I looked at all well, those reels. Or you were reels. just getting excited. Or that maybe. <laughs> Damn. But anyway. Yeah. Um, she saved not just the good reviews, but the bad ones. And what I think is really interesting is that he really let that bad press get to him. By the 19, late 1940s, he um, had a um, night and day, actually. If that movie hadn't come out when it did, he was like so depressed. They weren't sure that they, he was going to be able to write anymore. And they're like, oh, we're going to make a, a biopic of your life. He's like, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> but he was very susceptible to um, how other people felt about his work. He sometimes lacked that ability to know that his work had value. Um, he listened to what other people thought about it. That mattered maybe too much to him. Well, I think that's true. I, I don't know any writer, musician, movie star, whatever, who is not susceptible to that. Right. Cole always said that he didn't think a song was finished until Linda liked it. And I think that part of that is that she helped uh, dust, dust him off, put him back on his feet, and continued to give him the, it's okay, it's gonna be, it's great. Like, if he hadn't had a bunch of people around him all the time telling him that, I don't know if he could have you know, gone on writing songs because he was so susceptible. Well, and supposedly his last words were, I don't, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> so I think that kind of shows that, yeah, there was a bit of a crisis of confidence there, and especially after the accident when he was so vulnerable and in so much pain, it was something he struggled with. You know, the story of the artist is separate from the art, and it should be, because mm -hmm. what they're offering up in their art is personal, but it's also intrapersonal. It's for all of us, and it belongs to all of us, and we're all a part of it. Right. So it's not... It's and, not singularly and that, theirs. And that those experiences aren't exactly foreign to everybody's life, right. where, where you get bad reviews and people speak unfairly of you and all that. So it's just, it's a human, part of the human condition. I think it's so hard when we read a bad review. I didn't go, there's so many movies that we don't go see because we read a bad review and we're like, ah, why waste the money? And I think that it's really important for me as an artist for you all to understand that um, give art its own chance uh, if you can uh, because sometimes reviewers aren't right sometimes they read it all wrong and it's really up to you to make your own mind about that well I'd like to go back to his songwriting techniques because some of them were a little unconventional and I think they're kind of fun to think about mm -hmm. And one of the things that he was sort of famous for doing was pulling lines of conversation from his friends and using them in songs. First of all, he had his like daily routine. As Kathy said, he wrote a song almost every single day. Sit down at 10 a.m., glass of Cuddy Sark. He had a stack of rhyming dictionaries, a stack of them that he used to help him find lyrics. Um, but then there would be these times where he just couldn't find the right word. And one example is with the song Night and Day, which we're about to perform for you all. In the verse, you'll hear a line, it's like the drip, drip, drip of the raindrops, I think after spring, something like that. Anyway, 
That came from, he had a luncheon at Mrs. Astor's house, and uh, they were on the veranda, and it was raining, and then she's like, oh, that drip, drip, drip of the raindrops, and he's like, <laughs> that's it! <laughs> so we're going to play that for you now. Like the beat, beat, beat of the tom-tom When the jungle shadows fall Like the tick-tick-tock of the stately clock As it stands against the wall Like the drip-drip-drip of the raindrops When the summer showers Wherever I go, 
in the roaring traffic's boom in the silence of my lonely room I think of you for Joel Tucker. He worked really hard. <laughs> uh, I think one thing we haven't gone to about the marriage was that I don't think we've noted that she was 15 years older than he was, so there was a, a mother aspect to the whole thing. Yeah, and, and not long after they got married, she also, she was known as a great beauty and so there's only about two pictures of Cole and Linda together um, in all of the and, and I've been to both Harvard and Yale and seen um, all of the photographs in his collection and there's only one or two of this of just the two of them and, and one of them is he's escorting her into one of his shows and because she smoked and she was really sick she just looks really haggard um, I think that was also really hard for her because when she married him they, you know, they were such a gallant couple together, and then as she got sick, she really couldn't do those kinds of things anymore. The thing that um, really got me into more her than him is that as I was reading the biographies, she asked to be buried outside of, uh, it was called Buxton Hill. It was like her favorite place in the world. And he, she had the mansion, and then she had a bachelor's cottage for him on the property so that he could write all night, drink all night, do whatever he wanted to do all night long. And after she died, you know, she wanted to be buried there. And he said no, and he buried her somewhere else. And then he took her favorite house, and he blew it up with dynamite, and he moved his bachelor's cottage onto the foundation. And every single one of his biographers, who were all musical theater people, said that he did this because he missed her so much. <laughs> you don't blow up your wife's house because you miss her. You move. You move. So I, that's one of the things that really got me interested in her is like, what was going on in this marriage? He literally obliterated her. He yeah. moved his house on, onto the hill and just said, okay, and, and turned that into the mansion that's actually there today. And when she died, he never set foot in that house again, right? right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was complicated. <laughs> that's, that's cold. <laughs> those are the things that for writers, I write what I call non-fictional fiction. I write fiction that's based on things and people mm -hmm. that really lived. And it, oftentimes it's like a little mystery, like why? You know, it's that little thing that you don't understand why and you just write a story about it so you can find out. Well, to, to get back onto a positive side of Cole Porter, I, I think everybody will be happy to know that he seemed, as far as I could tell, to be very loyal to Peru, Indiana. That's true. And he was once interviewed and they asked him, what are your favorite things? 
and he said, cats, parties, swimming, scandal, movies, and Peru, Indiana. Now that's pretty good. That's uh, for a world, world-renowned uh, artist. He had an, a standing order at Arnold's Candies in Peru for their fame. They have these thing called gold bricks. It's chocolate-covered caramel and nuts. And he had a standing order there. They were, they would ship them to wherever he happened to be in the world. And Arnold's Candies was still there. I think when I was a kid. And and then they closed, and then somebody found the recipe, and somebody still makes the gold bricks and sells them in Peru, tries to sell them You should Peru. have those at your book part. It, yes. That should be a national thing, these kind of candies. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're going to play one more song from the Cole Porter songbook for you. Um, this, is, this is one of the, his later hits, and it's pretty aptly titled for the end of a show and talking about the end of a great man's life. It's called Every Time We Say Goodbye. Every time I say goodbye I cry a little Every time we say goodbye I wonder
Let's hear it for Julie Houston, Joel Tucker on the guitar, Kathy Day, author, watch for her forthcoming novel, Mr. Dan Wakefield, I'm Sophie Fodd on the saxophone, thank you. We are so grateful to you for joining us for another jam, and thank you so much. <laughs>